take your girlie to the movies if you can't make love at home. Take your girlie to the movies if you can't make love at home. Hello, and welcome back to Silence is Platinum. I'm your host, Jessica Keaton. And this is the latest entry in our series called No Talkies, Silent Forever, where we are covering silent film actors and actresses who died before they were able to appear in a talkie, cementing their fame in the silent era. This episode is going to cover four silent film actors and actresses who lost their lives to the dreaded disease tuberculosis, also known as consumption, Tuberculosis was especially rampant among the poorer communities during the early 20th century. This was due to the fact that the disease was highly contagious, and poor families had to live in very close proximity with one another. Now, Hollywood wasn't necessarily a poor community, but it did involve people working within close proximity to one another. And with the medical field still unaware of how best to treat the disease, we lost a good number of actors and actresses. I present to you here the story of one actor and three actresses who sadly became part of the TB statistics. Let's begin, shall we? Arthur Vaughn Johnson was born February 2, 1876, in Cincinnati, Ohio. He would use the name Arthur V. Johnson throughout his career. He was the youngest child born to Reverend Myron Johnson and his wife, Frances Mitchell. He had three older brothers, William, Walter, and Reginald, and an older sister, Adelaide, who went by Bessie. At least one of his brothers would follow in his father's footsteps and serve the church. Needless to say, Reverend Johnson did not approve of his youngest son's acting aspirations. I'm going to let Arthur explain a little bit more about his early life using an interview from 1912 with the Motion Picture Story magazine. Well, to give you the simple facts, I was educated in Kemper Hall, a military school in Davenport, Iowa. As no great war came along when I was graduated, I looked around for something to do in our town and got pretty tired looking. A Shakespearean star playing in Davenport gave me my first opportunity. I was cast as Tybalt in Romeo and Juliet, and the scrappy part rather suited me at first. After a while I got tired of being off regularly in the third act and decided to come east. This little journey was only a trial trip, for I wanted to try out with a larger and better equipped company. In the course of my theatrical career, and you know what a wandering life it is, He went on to explain his beginning steps that led to acting on the screen. I don't know what started me in the motion picture business. Guess I saw its big possibilities. At any rate, here I am. And in this order. First with Biograph, then Reliance. And last but not least, if you know how busy we are, with Lubin. Johnson made his screen debut in the 1905 short The White Caps for the Edison Company. His career would last for around 10 years, and in that time, he appeared in a whopping 300-plus shorts and films. His frequent co-stars were Florence Lawrence, a.k.a. The Biograph Girl, and Lottie Briscoe. Johnson and Briscoe were so well-known for their collaborations that Briscoe was actually listed as Johnson's widow when he died. 
The two never married, however, but I'm not 100% sure as to whether or not they were romantically involved. When asked about his career in 1912, Johnson elaborated on his passion. I think I enjoy a good character part the best, and in acting a scenario before the camera I really like to please myself first. Unless it be Miss Florence Lawrence, and no one could help trying to please her. I never have the audience in mind, or how they may like the finished picture. However, when the artistic end of the work is done, I'm just as crazy as anyone else to see the result. When I'm not at the theater, and Shakespeare is my hobby, I'm like a boy at a picture show, waiting to see how my work will turn out, and how the house will like it. Sounds like vanity, sure enough, doesn't it? Johnson really was passionate about Shakespeare. In fact, whenever he traveled, he brought a number of Shakespeare's works with him to read. In 1915, Johnson reportedly suffered a nervous breakdown that was attributed to overwork. Physicians began telling the press not to hold out much hope that Johnson would recover anytime soon, and that he needed at least six months' worth of rest. When reporters reached out to Johnson himself to inquire about his condition, he told them, Please tell my friends that I've had a nervous breakdown. Not a very serious one. I've been working very hard for the past few years, and have needed a vacation. Interestingly, a few years earlier, Johnson responded to an interviewer's question about vacations with, How do I spend my vacation? (laughs) Don't take any. As I previously stated, physicians wanted Johnson to rest for at least six months before returning to work. Johnson, however, wasn't having it. He wanted to get back to work as soon as he could. Unfortunately, he would make his final film the same year of his nervous breakdown. The aptly titled The Last Rose was for Lubin. On January 17, 1916, Arthur Johnson passed away in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. His cause of death was listed as tuberculosis, exacerbated by stress and overwork. He was buried at Fairview Cemetery in Chicopee, Massachusetts. Sadly, he predeceased both of his parents, and all but one of his siblings. His oldest brother, William, died in 1886 at the age of 21. Arthur was just 40 years old. An intriguing note on his death. On his death certificate, Johnson's marital status is simply marked with a giant X, and in the box marked informant, or the person who reported the death, was the name Olive, whose address was the same as Johnson's at the time of his death. I don't know who she is or what the relationship was. For all I know, she could have just been a neighbor. According to records, Johnson was married at least once to Maud Webb, an actress who used the name Mary Vaughn as her stage name. The couple married in 1897 and had a daughter Margaret the following year. Margaret Johnson was only 17 years old when her father died, and she was just beginning to focus on acting following in her parents' footsteps. A few months after her father's death, Margaret was interviewed by Picture Play magazine and asked about her acting career and her father. I'm trying to decide between the legitimate stage and pictures. My father seemed to prefer pictures, not only for himself, but for me also, as he was intending to take me into the company with him. I've played several small parts with him, and he seemed to think I had some talent in that line. I am very fond of the work myself, and I think I'll enjoy it very much. 
I've also read that Johnson was married to an actress named Florence Hackett after his marriage to Maud, but I can't find anything to substantiate this, nor is she listed as his widow when he died. Movie fans were shocked and saddened by the death of Arthur V. Johnson. He was quite a popular leading man in his time, although sadly, he's barely remembered today. Johnson's acting was described as remarkable, and he was called a unique genius that, quote, created a lifelikeness of the characters he created. Ironically, one fan wrote into a fan magazine complimenting the way Johnson spoke, saying his very frankness of speech and original way demands attention. Also, the enthusiastic and frank way in which he acts places him in a far superior class to those whose acting appears self-conscious and unnatural. One newspaper in Indiana even said that he was the man that children adore, women love, and men like. So, who was Arthur V. Johnson? There's the actor of stage and screen who loved Shakespeare and worked hard at his craft. There's the man who loved motion pictures and loved to watch his own films along with other movie-going audiences. He reportedly would go to the theater up to three times a week. I think one of the most important things to remember about Johnson is that he loved acting, and his talent was appreciated by his co-workers, his bosses, and also the fans. Johnson was quite a fan favorite, known for frequently complimenting fan magazines and interviewers. In fact, after one interview, Johnson offered to give the interviewer a ride since they were both going the same way. What a guy. In 1912, a fan submitted a poem they had written to the motion picture story magazine that was dedicated to Arthur V. Johnson. I think it will serve as a fitting way to end this portion of the episode. He is so tall and manly, and has such lovely eyes. Oh, Arthur Johnson, tis you I idolize. In every Lubin film, I always look to see if I can catch a glimpse of dearest Arthur V. Francis Burnham was born Francis Anita Burnham on April 19, 1895, in Los Angeles. She was the only child born to Frank Burnham and his wife, Susanna Susie Carr. Francis, nicknamed Frankie, did have an older half-brother named Oscar Dean from her mother's first marriage, and would gain another brother and sister, Ernest and Violet, when her parents separated and Susie Carr remarried. Susie would marry a fourth time, but that marriage did not produce children. Susie, as you can probably already guess, was an interesting character. A 1917 fan magazine called her Frankie's best friend and constant companion. As intriguing as her mother was, her father seems to have just appeared and then disappeared. His early history is virtually unknown. Around 1910, when she was just 15 years old, Frankie was working at a box factory. It appears that like many other children at the time, it was more important for Frankie to go to work and earn a wage rather than go to school and get an education. She would make her film debut in the 1915 short Put Me Off at Wayville for the Calum Company. Besides Calum, she would also work for Fox, Metro, and the Marine Film Companies. Her film career consisted of only eight shorts and films and was fairly unremarkable. 
Her acting received mixed reviews, and any stir she may have caused was short-lived. The biggest buzz she received was from her role in 1917's Lorelei of the Sea, which starred Tyrone Powers Sr. Frankie was described as being well-cast, and she, quote, carries her part with a true dramatic touch. However, another fan magazine said that Miss Burnham, while in no sense a great actress, is well-fitted to the part of the simple island girl and is charmingly graceful. Kind of a backhanded compliment there. It seems that a lot of her positive publicity was a result of her good looks and not her talent. Moving Picture World described her in 1917 as a 19-year-old striking blonde with the darkest of eyes. She made her final film, Who's Your Servant, in 1920. Frances Burnham passed away on July 10, 1924, in Monrovia, California, from pulmonary tuberculosis. She was just 29 years old. On her death certificate, her occupation was listed as housewife. She was buried in an unmarked grave at Forest Lawn in Glendale, California. Prior to her death, around 1918 or 1919, Frankie was hospitalized twice during the filming of On the Jump, which starred George Walsh. I want to talk for a minute about the location where Frankie died, Pottinger's Sanatorium in Monrovia, California. This was a facility that housed tuberculosis patients and became the temporary home to a number of stars. It would also become the place that Mabel Norman would die in 1930. The sanatorium would close its doors in 1955, and the building was eventually turned into a convent for the Carmelite Order. The land was sold again in the 1970s and became a housing development. None of the buildings or cottages that comprise the sanatorium remain. The Monrovia Historical Museum, however, does contain a number of artifacts from the facility. Remember Pottinger's, because it's going to pop up again later in this episode. At the time of her death, Frankie was married to a salesman named Noble Sheldon. The couple married in 1920. It seems that once she married, she focused on being a housewife, but it's unknown if that is the reason why she retired from acting. Frances Burnham, sadly, remains a bit of a mystery. Her career came and went, and the fact that she's lying in an unmarked grave doesn't make it easier for people to remember her. I'm hoping to remedy that situation in the future. Off-screen, Frankie was described as a fine equestrian, a good swimmer, very beautiful, and entirely unspoiled. In 1915, she used her beauty to introduce a new fashion accessory that was referred to as a disappearing beauty spot. She began wearing a fake beauty spot on her eyelid that would seem to disappear when her eyes were open. It could only be seen, as the magazine hints, when she is giving a flirtatious wink. I just love the quirky flapper fashions of the 1920s, don't you? Lottie Lyell was born Charlotte Edith Cox on February 23, 1890, in Sydney, Australia. She was the youngest daughter born to Joseph Cox and Charlotte Louisa Hancock. She had two older sisters, Rita and Linda. Sadly, Rita passed away in 1911 at the age of 23 from tuberculosis. Frank Cox would die a year later, leaving Charlotte alone to care for her two daughters. It was shortly before her sister and father's death that Lottie began taking a serious interest in acting. 
She joined a traveling troupe that took her all over Australia, New Zealand, and Tasmania. It was also around this time that she began using the stage name Lottie Lyell, the surname borrowed from a neighbor. While she was on the road, Charlotte Cox put her daughter's care in the hands of Raymond Longford, a man who would play a significant role in Lottie's life. It was in 1911 that she had her first credited screen role in The Fatal Wedding, and so begins the career of a woman considered to be Australia's first movie star. Almost all of Lottie's films would be under the direction of her one-time caregiver, Raymond Longford. One of these films, 1918's The Woman Suffers, was actually banned in Australia without any reason given. I'm sure the ban had something to do with the film's plot. The film centers around a woman, played by Lottie, who is seduced and impregnated by a man who then abandons her. She tries to abort the baby, but is stopped by the man's brother. The film, which is sometimes referred to as Australia's first feminist film, was recently discovered in the 1980s and is available to watch on YouTube. Another one of her most well-known films was The Sentimental Bloke, which was released the following year in 1919. This film also stands out because Lottie helped write the screenplay. It is also available to watch on YouTube. Speaking of screenwriting, this is a good time to highlight Lottie's work behind the camera. Eleven films have been credited as being written by Lottie, but the number is actually thought to be much higher. She just wasn't given proper credit. She also worked as an editor and a director. Years after her death, Co-stars reported that Lottie was extremely helpful behind the camera and was very well-liked. Sadly, Lottie would end up working behind the scenes more and more in the last years of her life due to falling ill with tuberculosis around 1920. She made her last on-screen appearance in 1923's Gentleman in Mufti, a film she helped write. On December 21, 1925, Lottie Lyell passed away after battling tuberculosis. She was just 35 years old. She was buried at Macquarie Park Cemetery in North Ryde, South Wales. Lottie's death was the second blow in short succession to the Cox family. A few months before Lottie's death, her older sister Linda also passed away from tuberculosis. Charlotte Cox was left alone, having outlived her husband and all three of her daughters. She would pass away in 1940. Lottie passed away having never married, but she by no means had a lackluster personal life. For over ten years, Lottie was mentored and later romanced by Raymond Longford. The two first became acquainted shortly after Lottie's father, Joseph, passed away in 1912. When Lottie was preparing to tour the country with a the theater company, Charlotte Cox wanted to make sure her youngest daughter was well looked after. She handed the reins over to Longford, who would also be touring with the company. Longford was roughly 12 years older than Lottie, and a married man. This didn't seem to be much of an issue, because on the road, Lottie and Longford became romantically involved. In fact, when they weren't touring, Longford lived with Lottie, her mother, and her sister. When Longford began acting and directing films, he invited Lottie to the studios to have a go at the moving pictures. The duo's collaboration in terms of early Australian filmmaking has been recognized as being groundbreaking. Their films were also very popular with audiences upon their initial release. After Lottie died in 1925, Longford would continue to direct films, 
but he was absolutely devastated by the loss of his partner. The same year of Lottie's death, his wife Milena and he would finally divorce. Longford had been pushing for a divorce for years, but Milena, being a devout Catholic, had refused. I'm not sure what the final straw was for her that she finally agreed to a divorce. Maybe it was Lottie's death. In 1933, Longford would marry again to a woman named Emily Anschutz. The couple would remain married until Longford passed away in 1959. In a pretty interesting gesture, Emily had Longford buried with his beloved partner, Lottie Lyell. However, his headstone does include the line, Beloved Husband of Emily Longford. I believe Emily was also interred in the same cemetery when she died in 1975, but I couldn't confirm this. This situation is similar to what happened when Clark Gable died. At the time of his death in 1960, Gable was married to his fifth wife, Kay, and she honored his wishes and had him interred next to his third wife, actress Carol Lombard, at Forest Lawn Glendale. When Kay died in 1983, she was entombed one row down and to the left of her husband. Back to Lottie. It's interesting to note that upon his death, Raymond Longford didn't leave behind any letters or journals detailing his relationship with Lottie. So the true nature of their relationship will never be known. What we do know for sure is that theirs was an important partnership for both Australian films and filmmaking worldwide. Their work is so well-respected in their home country that an award was named in their honor. The Longford Lyell Award is awarded to those who offer a contribution to the enrichment of Australia's cinema. On top of all the work she did in front of and behind the camera, Lottie was also an accomplished horsewoman. She sounds like quite the lady, and it's tragic that her life was cut so short. I think a great way to end this chapter on Lottie is with the epitaph that appears on her headstone. The line comes from the play Camille by Alexander Dumas and reads, Next to possessing affections so beautiful and pure as hers is the remembrance of them when they are beyond our reach. Diana Miller was born Diana Moreland on March 18, 1902 in Seattle, Washington. And unfortunately, that's the extent of my knowledge on her early life. Diana is a bit of a mystery. I couldn't find anything about her in census records, which is frustrating, but we will soldier on. The redheaded Diana made her film debut in 1924's Honor Among Men, which starred Edmund Lowe and Claire Adams. The film was made at Fox, which is where she worked on all of her 13 films. Her career may have been short, but her acting was by no means unappreciated. One of her reviewers called her acting a revelation in acting. Her final completed film was 1926's The Cowboy and the Countess, which starred Buck Jones. The following year, Diana was set to appear in the film Freedom of the Press, opposite Louis Stone and Henry B. Walthall. However, she'd become ill with tuberculosis, and her sickness was holding up filming, she would eventually be replaced by actress Marceline Day, and the film was released in 1928. Diana Miller passed away on December 18, 1927, from tuberculosis. She had been hospitalized at Pottinger Sanatorium in Monrovia, California, the same place where Frances Burnham, who we discussed earlier, passed away. 
Diana was just 25 years old. What was really sad to read was that a month before her death, newspapers were reporting that Diana had recovered and was expected to get back to filmmaking soon, but she apparently had a relapse. Diana's funeral was held at the Little Church of Flowers in Glendale, California. Two days prior, her body lay in state at Struthers Funeral Parlor in Hollywood. She was then interred at Forest Lawn in Glendale, California. Diana was married twice. Her first husband was actor William Stage Boyd, not to be confused with cowboy actor William Boyd. I don't have the exact dates of their marriage, but it would have been in the early 1920s. She married for the second time in 1925 to director George Melford. The couple first met while he was working on the Valentino vehicle, the Sheik. When asked about her husband in 1927, Diana said, I was an extra when I first met George, and gracious, I was afraid of him. He had selected me for the part of a slave girl in the Sheik, and I guess I didn't play the role any too well, because he didn't hesitate to tell me what he thought of my talents as an actress. I trembled and shook in my boots, but now I'm not so afraid of him. However, when they first met, they were both married. Melford's wife, Louise, filed for divorce in 1923, but she actually named another actress, Jacqueline Logan, in the suit. However, a few months after the divorce was granted, Melford and Diana announced their plans to marry. They remained married until her death. It's sad to write an entry on someone we know so little about, but we do know was that she was so young, she had a promising career, and she was sadly taken far too soon. This is why I started the blog and this podcast, to highlight actors and actresses like Diana, who only had a brief chance to shine before fading into Hollywood obscurity. I hope that by sharing her story and others, that more people will know their names and want to see their photographs and watch their films. In that sense, they will continue to live on. And so, we have reached the end of another episode. I want to say thank you to a friend of the show, Arthur Dark from Hollywood Graveyard, who made Arthur V. Johnson come to life at the beginning of this episode. Arthur Dark is a connoisseur of famous Hollywood graves, and you can find him on both YouTube and Instagram under Hollywood Graveyard. Our next entry in the series will cover silent film stars who lost their lives during the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. Make sure to rate and review the podcast so I know if you're loving the content, and also it helps to spread the word. Also, remember to check out the Silence is Platinum blog at www www.silenceisplatinum.blogspot.com for pictures and source info on this and past episodes. And also, feel free to email me at silencesplatinumpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or if you just want to say hi. So, until next time, remember the immortal words of Miss Mary Pickford. Adding sound to movies would be like putting lipstick on the Venus de Milo.